0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Steven Siegel, and today we'll be joined by our guest, historian Elizabeth Peeler, who is the author of Selling Weimar, German Public Diplomacy and the United States, 1918 to 1933, published by Franz Steiner Verlag the press in 2021. Uh, Welcome, Elizabeth, and thanks for joining me on my 50th episode here at New Books Network.
1: Well, congratulations, and thank you so much for having me.
0: So a little bit about uh, Dr. Piller. She is an assistant professor of transatlantic and North American history at the University of Freiburg in Germany. And she works on US and German foreign policy and transatlantic relations in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, And I'll I'll just say, you know, sort of personally here, Elizabeth was a a student remarkably in one of the first courses I ever taught back at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville in 2005. So uh, the contact goes back a long ways and I wanna ask her a lot of questions about Weimar. Uh, So let me start, Um, what brought you to this topic? Why Weimar and why your book?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so actually, this book, in a way, goes back to my master's thesis, which I wrote at the University of Heidelberg. And um, I was looking for a topic, and I was um, Heidelberg has this wonderful library on American history. And I was just sort of rummaging around, and I opened a book, and I came upon... Um, a book that was written sort of as a, as a thank you note to the American child feeding program in post-World War One Weimar Germany. So I was intrigued by that. And then I started writing my master's thesis on American aid to Weimar Germany and what it meant and, and what we can make of it in terms of international relations. And I came upon a conundrum that I sort of a puzzle that that something that I couldn't explain, that I couldn't make sense of. And that was, in 1919, German-American relations were really at their all-time low, right? Germany was um, uh, defeated in the First World War. America had won the First World War. Um, the Germans were seen in extremely negative light. Um, they were seen to have started the First World War, but also to have conducted it brutally. Um, there was this sort of image of the Hun um Mm -hmm. and so that's 1919 like sort of relations have never been worse and then 10 years later in 1929 everyone agrees there's a complete transatlantic consensus that really relations have never been better like never have america and and the united uh, have the united states and germany been sort of um uh, enjoyed more of a transatlantic friendship than then so the question i kept asking myself is How, over this decade, how do you go from all-time low to all-time high? um, And and how did these two countries sort of reconcile after the First World War? Um, Mm -hmm. And the traditional answer to this is its economic interrelations, right? So, um, The United States became involved um, with German reparations. There were a lot of loans that flowed into Germany. And obviously, you know, if you have this financial and economic entanglement, then your relations are going to get better. Um, But my question was, why why did the German image sort of improve so much? And what do Germans have to do with this? Was there a concerted strategy to actually improve them? Um, And... The United States was extremely important to German foreign policy because Germany wanted to revise the Versailles Treaty. Um, And America was seen as a key country for this. So the question was, how did they actually try to win the United States? How did they try to win over the American public um, to to look more favorably on on the German cause, Mm -hmm. um, on revising Mm -hmm. the Versailles Peace Treaty? So from this master's thesis on something different, I arrived at this question, and that's that's a question I tried to answer in the book.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And and so who are the
0: actors in your story, then? Who who are the people who are participating in this Kulturpolitik? Um, And and as part of your argument here, maybe you can explain what you mean by peaceful imperialism.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the question I ask is... um, what role did public diplomacy, did public outreach, in particular, sort of the the use of cultural relations? How how what role did that play in the rapprochement between Germany and the United States? Um, and what I look at is a group of people that I call peaceful revisionists. Um, so revision, obviously, the revision of the Versailles Treaty, um, and peaceful because they were convinced that you know you could achieve revision and many in germany wanted to by you know secretly rearming or by sort of having um, by planning military action in in the long run but he could also and this was for example advocated by german foreign minister gustav stresemann you could do it peacefully by cooperation mm-hmm. by trying to convince important others that by and by Um, the provisions of the Versailles Treaty needed to be reversed in order to build a stable and peaceful order. And so the peaceful revisionists that I describe are men and women, a few women, um, that know how important the United States is to achieving the revision of the Versailles Treaty. But they also know how important it is to win over the United States, and so this is their project, and it's men and women like uh, Gustav Stresemann, um, but also sort of the America Department of the German Foreign Ministry, of various sort of tourist boosters, of friendship organizations, um, of many academics, many of whom had relations with the United States before the First World War, and so on and so on. So there's this group that, um, that I, focus, um, I focus my book around and I follow mm-hmm. Um, as mm-hmm. they try to rewin American sympathies.
0: Yeah, I, and I, I'm particularly interested in the, the continuities with the Kaiserreich and, and things like the Prussian Ministry of Culture. Um, but I, I wanted, and if you, I wondered if you could, for our listeners, introduce your chapters and how you arrange them. So, how did you end up dividing uh, your book with all the sources that you that you look at?
1: Yeah. Um, Maybe I can say something on, on sources first, mm-hmm. very, very briefly, yep. and then I I, I it's tell two, you how.
0: Two part question, yes.
1: <laughs> two part question, yeah. So um, this book is very much is very much sort of a traditional diplomatic history, but with sort of a twist, with a wider cast of of transnational actors. Um, like academics, like students, like tourists, and so on. Um, and so this is also reflected in the sources I use. I use the German Foreign Ministry archives quite extensively, but I also use um, the files of many different universities, um, of, of uh, the personal papers of professors, both German and uh, American, um, of, of tourist organization, of tourism tourism boards, and so on. Um, and the two things that I enjoyed most, I have to say, are A, uh, in the United States, the Institute of International Education, which is founded mm. in 1919, sort of to... Right, to oversee IIE. Stu- IIE, exactly. It's still around. It's still a big player in American cultural diplomacy. Um, and their files were just made available in 2016. So for the first time in, in 50 years or so. So now it becomes possible to study student exchanges um, with, with, you know, really good records. And, for example, every student that went to the United States had to hand in, or every American student that went to Germany had to hand in two reports about his or her impressions. So it becomes very or relatively easier to get closer to what these people actually thought at the time, how they experienced the other country. And that was that was magnificent. And the second mm. collection, and in all I went to twenty different archives or so, but the second amazing find um, was there was a German tourist information office in 1925 founded in New York and it was supposed to promote a completely different image of Germany. It's one of sort of the main actors of Weimar Germany's public diplomacy in the United States. It's comparatively richly endowed um, and in 1941 um, the Roosevelt administration shut down all the German propaganda offices including this tourism office, and they kept all the records in the National Archives in Maryland, and so wow. there's 200 boxes just wow. somewhere. <laughs> I didn't know in, that in the basement, yeah, of, yeah, yeah, um, of the National Archives um, in College Park, Maryland, um, and they contain everything there is to know about the German Tourism Information Office from 1925 to 1941. So you Mm. can imagine how much fun that was. Um, And so I used all these different collections um, to, well, write about this topic. Um, And um, so I I have three parts to this book. Um, And the first part is from 1919 to 1924, so immediately, the five years following the First World War, and it's it's called breaking the cultural blockade. Um, and the background to that is that Germans in 1919 they felt excluded from, you know, the international sort of family of nations, um, and they felt excluded e- economically. They felt, you know, excluded. Um, in all sorts of ways, but in particular, they also felt excluded in a moral and cultural sense. There's actually a lot of int- new international organizations that come into being, and they're founded without Germany. Um, there is, for example, an international scientific um organization that is founded in 1919, and it's founded without German participation. So all Mm -hmm. the great scientific nations of the world find their way together in Paris to found this, but Germany is excluded. It's even excluded from sort of the new humanitarian federation, the League of Red Cross Societies. So through the board, you have a moral isolation, and what Germans deem sort of... um, because they talk a lot about the hunger blockade and the economic blockade during the First World War. They talk about the cultural blockade. Um, The war is over, but Germany is still isolated. So the question I ask in the first three chapters is, how do they escape this isolation? Um, What strategies do they develop? And sort of the first thing that they notice is... um, that they need to win the United States, um, but unfortunately, Americans are especially hostile to Germans. Um, Mm -hmm. So so the first chapter sort of deals with how, what they think about the United States and how they sort of hope that the United States will be the solution to all their problems. and how they then realized that, oh, unfortunately, Americans really don't like us much. Um, and what does that mean? And then the second chapter actually goes back to 1900. It goes all the way back. And it sort of, in light of what German-American relations were like these last 20 years, the 20 years before sort of 1920, um, outlines what what former strategies Germans had sort of developed. Um, to win Americans. And, of course, also um, to see how German propaganda just completely um, c- completely failed during the First mm-hmm. World War. Um, it, mm-hmm. it actually becomes known as sort of, quote-unquote, German propaganda, because it's so obvious and it's so obnoxious. Um, and <laughs> Americans, for most of the 1920s, actually will see German propaganda everywhere.
0: Like, right. as soon
1: as, you know, Germans try anything that's even remotely official, it will be deemed German propaganda and hence will be very ineffective. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is part of the reason why they start to develop more cultural forms of outreach because German propaganda sort of hasn't worked in the past and they're sort of smart enough to eventually realize that this is part of the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is what I show in sort of the third chapter, Um, which which is mostly about 1923. Um, 1923 is sort of a real, real turning point here. Uh, It's it's the year of German crises, um, the year of when the French occupy the Ruhr, but also of German hyperinflation, of of, um, various attempted coups from the left and from the right, including the famous Beer Hall Putsch. And so it's the moment when Weimar almost fails. But it's also the moment when sort of German-American relations and German ideas about public diplomacy are put on a completely different footing. And they realize in this moment, in 1923, when they want nothing more but American support, which eventually is forthcoming in in the Dawes' Reparations Agreement, um, which is something that the United States brokers and starts to do so in very late 1923. But they want to win the United States, but they realize that propaganda isn't getting them
0: anywhere. That, that's, that's really interesting. I, actually, I wonder if we might focus on those um, moments, um, yeah. and then we'll, we'll come back to the, the later chapters and yeah. how you develop this up to 1933. So, yeah. I, I mean, you've written before about academic distress and foreign aid and sort of mobilization strategies. So um, how are the relationships reconstituted? both, let's say, in a form of academic diplomacy and then among the business community up to, as you mentioned, this year of crisis in the fall of, of 1923, when there's both left and right-wing coups um, in the Weimar Republic. So it, who, who are the partners, let's say, um, among, you know, in this condition or in, under these circumstances of, of academic distress in German-American relations, let's say, both in academia and in business?
1: Um, Yeah, so I I think the important thing here is that Germans aren't terribly successful in overcoming their isolation until 1923. Um, But Mm -hmm. there are a very few exceptions. Um, You will get, for example, someone like Herbert Hoover or someone, you know, you will get those sort of humanitarian actors who, who actually start to redevelop ties with Germany. And who who becomes sort of this this first um, for Germans the first sort of idea that it might be possible to um, arrive at a better relationship with with the United States. But in all, there's really not much you know um, that that yeah. Germany isn't very successful. In 1922, the German ambassador, um, Archard um he writes. Uh, he sends a list of influential pro-German Americans um, back to Berlin. And the list is, you know, there's there's like 22 names and they're all German Americans and none of them is even remotely influential. So Mm, that's curious. Yeah. This is the point where we're at in in 1922, 23 is that really they haven't made any headway. Um, Mm. And then comes the Ruhr crisis. And the first thing, the German chancellor sends out a memorandum and it says, whatever we do, we have to win the United States. This is the mission for this year. Um, and then the embassy in Washington is inundated with propaganda proposals. Everyone knows what just what to do. Um, there's this one memorandum that uh, German businesses send in, and it outlines in, I think, 18 pages... Um, what they want to do to win over the American public. And there's movies and there's lecturers and um, mm-hmm. it, it is radio shows and so on. And all of this will just cost seven million marks um and of or right. seven million excuse me seven million dollars seven million oh, which dollars is, which is, <laughs>
0: that's which a is, lot that's a lot wh- of marks in 1923
1: is, which is which, is, which is, and and the, the funny thing about this is that <laughs> that the, the german embassy has a press fund like a press slash propaganda fund um, yeah yeah and every month that's a hundred dollars and so it's, it just shows how you know there's this conviction we need to win the United States, but no one has any idea how to do so, and no one has the money to actually make it happen. And in this moment, the German ambassador—this is now fall 1923—everything is falling apart. He writes this. He writes home 41 pages to clarify that the problem here is that propaganda, no matter how well done, is just not that powerful. And in a way, Mm -hmm. he breaks the spell that the First World War, Germans sort of believed propaganda is all powerful. If we just do it right, if we do it as well as Great Britain, then we can get everything. And here in this moment of existential crisis, there's this one person um, that says no, this is just miracle belief. He calls it wunderglaube. This is miracle belief. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is we need to develop a viable economic strategy towards the United States. And we need to reach out culturally. We need to mm-hmm. find a new basis on which we can actually talk to the United States. We don't need any more propaganda. And mm-hmm. you and this is when it flips. And from then on out, and this is sort of what the second part will be about, is uh, or of the book is about. From that moment onward, they start to develop a much better idea of how actually to to rekindle ties with the United States, um, and also um, what happens in very late 1923 is that this immense resentment that many Americans still had with regard to Germany sort of um, withers, um, and partly because. The French are seen more and more as a as aggressive, and as a problem. Um, and the Franco-German relations always sort of play a big role in how Americans evaluate either country. Um, and the second is that you know, sort of faced with German ruin, with the fact that Germany, Weimar Germany, might not survive, Americans start to to um, to reconsider um, their mm-hmm. position, and so right. There's a reorientation in Germany, but then at the same time, there's also sort of um, much more sympathies in the United States, and on that basis, you everything flips, Um, and for the next five years, you you have completely different opportunities um, in terms of winning the American public back.
0: Yeah, and and I'm I'm really interested, Elizabeth, in how you understand revisionism and you know the appeal that goes out to the twenty. Five million Americans, um, at least ac- according to German estimates. And you know, census is one thing, and census is deceived. But um, I'm, I'm interested in how and why, despite all the factionalism, there is this special appeal to the United States as a potential partner for revisionism. Yeah. Can Can you ex- explain how that works, especially through the second part of your book? It's it's a fascinating story.
1: Um, Yeah, so the the reason why the United States are so important is because they are, okay, they're a new great power, um, but they're also so important because they're the world's creditor, right? I mean, everyone owes them money, and especially the people that Germany needs to agree to a revision of the Versailles Treaty, France in particular, owes the United States money. And so the United States is the only country that sort of can exert that type of pressure um, that Germany needs. So this is, this is sort of behind all this focus on the United States, in addition to that many Germans are extremely fascinated by the United States in the 1920s. So it's part of it is sort of uh, foreign policy calculation, and another is that people are just intrigued um, mm-hmm. by the United States. And sort of these two things actually um, flow together uh, quite well. Um, And so what happens over the next five years, from 1924 to 1929, this is sort of the peak of of good relations between these these two countries, is that Germans, but also helped by many American internationalists, develop various strategies of how to um, tie these two countries together again um, in the hope that... With a better, with sort of with an improved German image, um, Americans will also sort of look more kindly upon revising the treaty in German favor. So this is Mm -hmm. a this is a um, it's it's not always sort of the first thing they think of, but sort of revisionism um, is is the overarching the Mm -hmm. overarching objective that binds a lot of these people together.
0: And and could you map out maybe some of these um, Ausland institutes? I mean, I, I know there, there's one in, in Stuttgart, and you know, sort of in American cities, especially where where the franchise matters and voting matters in the 1920s. How I, I would say, you know, yes, transnationally, but how locally, regionally, state by state, province by province are some of these connections happening in this period from 1924 to 1929, as you say.
1: Um, You mean with regard to German-Americans? Yes.
0: So German-American relations. I mean, there's German day celebrations. There's, you know, sort of like the tying to Heimatkultur and all of that with ethnic life. So I'm wondering, you know, if this is how organized it is and then where some of those relationships happen.
1: Yeah, so I I should say first that sort of in this part two, I look at three different target groups, if you want to call it that. German-Americans, American academics, because sort of Germany always feels like sort of an academic great power, um, and then Mm -hmm. tourists. And so for German-Americans, you know, the 1920s in Weimar, Germany are a high time of Germandom politics. And most of that is directed towards the East, Eastern Europe, uh, where one hopes to sort of use the Germans or ethnic Germans that are still settled on former German territories um, to sort of uh, keep them on the land and then ultimately that land will fall back to Germany. Um, So that's the strategy in Eastern Europe. With regard to German-Americans, sort of, who have been very long settled in the United States, they develop a completely um, and surprisingly different strategy. Very early on, um, they start to realize that the worst thing they can do is to try and mobilize German-Americans, um, because they tried during, mm. during the First World War, and it right. backfired. Um, That's a good point. Massively. And so what they do is they try to develop very harmless, politically unobtrusive means by which they reach out to German Americans. Um, in part, this is just including them, sort of targeting targeting them as tourists, for example, um, or um, you know celebrating sort of certain German heroes, like. Good celebrations um, or so. Um, but the most important thing is that they really abstain from trying to mobilize them politically or in catering to the quote-unquote German vote in the United States. Um, mm. And I, I argue in my book that actually maybe the most important thing that, um, that German public diplomats do is, is something they don't do and that mm. is they don't try to activate German-Americans. Um, and the Kaiserreich, sort of Wilhelmine, Germany did it, and the Nazis will do it again. And in mm-hmm. both of these cases, you get an immediate backlash. Um, right. And the fact that Weimar doesn't, and that the people in charge realize that this is the most dangerous thing they could potentially do, that in this itself is very Telling of how important the United States is, um, but also how with how much psychological knowledge, um, Weimar foreign policy towards the United States is actually conducted, especially Mm -hmm. if you compare it to you know what comes before and what comes after.
0: Yeah, and I'm thinking actually about what you know, sort of the Czechs or Czechoslovaks and Poles are doing, and it it seems very different, or, or even Yugoslavs after 1919, you yeah. know, what, what Masaryk and Benes do, for example, or, or, or Paderewski, uh, it's much more aggressive and, you know, to the point of, of rallying um, Polish-Americans or Czech or Slovak-Americans or South Slav Americans and yeah. so forth. Um, and even in the case of, of Hungary, over the line for revisionism, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating and I think um, a topic that needs to be researched, and I'm glad you've done it. Um, I wanted to ask one more question. So moving on from part two to part three, um, you talk about some of these academic organizations and, and societies. Uh, I wonder if you might say a few words about that. I know um, from reading your book, that the American Association of Teachers of German, for example, uh, had been founded in 1926, and the Deutsches Haus at Columbia as well. So, what what role do those kind of academic organizations, once they're established in the in the U.S., um, have?
1: Um, yes, uh, absolutely. So, one has to um, recall that sort of German American relations in the 19th century for a long time, are actually our academic relations, right? So there's about 10,000 U.S. students that go to, to German universities, and, and Germany feels like an academic superpower. Um, and, and certainly many other countries see it as such. Then comes the First World War, and it leads to a terrible falling out between German and American academics in particular. Um, there's these open manifestos and um, American professors charge German professors with being complicit in in atrocities mm-hmm. in Belgium and so on. Um, and so there is this complete break. Um, in 1914, most Germans believed that Americans would stand by them, especially those at universities, because they had had such long and sort of fruitful relationships. And this is completely disappointed. And so it takes a long time until the mid-1920s at the very least before they begin even to to renew their relations um, because there is so much disappointment. And what happens is that um, Germans, but also aided by internationalists like, um, for example, the president of Columbia University, Nicholas Murray Butler, they develop new ways of sort of getting back in touch, in particular for students. I think Mm -hmm. they realize that the old German professors aren't going to be reconstructed in any sense. There's actually one letter yeah. that says then they're, right. they're like oh. our old southern journals <laughs> yeah <laughs> albert
0: albert Albrecht, Albrecht is a good example i know from writing his biography yeah. there's old folkish ger- yeah. germans yeah they're, go ahead
1: they're, 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 you know they're not they're, there's nothing these the old german and the old american professors are probably not going to get back together and save the world but perhaps students will And so much of the focus of both these countries is on developing viable student exchanges. And this is also sort of an aspect that I enjoyed writing about a lot, partly because sort of these new records are available, um, but also because you can feel sort of this real enthusiasm, especially for sort of German students coming over to the United States. I mean, they have grown up under the First World War and then inflation and instability, and so on, and they arrive in the United States, and everything is so prosperous, and calm and big and they are free and they can afford a car and they drive around. And, you know, this, this one student, and he arrives on the Berkeley campus in 1927 and he describes sort of, everyone is beautiful. Everyone has perfect, (laughs) everyone has perfect clothes and everyone is just transcendent. Like everyone's sort of um, tanned. And, and then he immediately sort of goes on to, to marry his landlady's daughter. And and so you can you really get what America what the United States means for Weimar German students who are like in their early or mid twenties, and um, what um, what that can do to this sort of relationship. And the same is true for the American students who come to Germany, and they are enthused by other things, right? Not the prosperity, obviously, but mm-hmm. the order. Um, the rich cultural life, which they enjoy very much, and and especially they're shocked by the politicization of German academic life. Um, and for many of them, when you read their reports, it's the first time they recognize what the First World War has actually meant for Europeans. Um, the degree to which Germans are obsessed with revising the Versailles Treaty and and how hard it is to reach out to former enemies. And realizing that I think breeds a lot more sympathy in them um, for mm-hmm. German um, for, for what Germany wants, for trying to somehow make this right so Europe can go on to sort of a peaceful coexistence. Um, mm-hmm. And you have, and sometimes you just have sort of people arrive there and I have this letter from this one Yale student who is in Berlin in 1927, and he writes back to his parents, he says, we got it all wrong. Everything we were told about the Germans in the First World War is completely wrong. They're lovely people. And um, we, we, we got everything wrong and we went into an alliance with France, but really we have a much more natural connection to the Germans um mm-hmm. And so with this one person and with this small cohort of exchange students, and it's in all, it's about 1,500 exchange students, um, with these small cohorts, you have um, a microcosm of what potentially can happen if you um, bring sort of students together, or if you bring Germans and Americans. Together and and of mm-hmm. course they used as instruments, but there's also a lot of sort of youthful enthusiasm um, yeah. that goes into these. And that was a lot of fun. As was yeah. the chapter on tourism, which works I, in I, a I... similar way. <laughs>
0: I, I, I can imagine. I mean, I think of so many, you know, American academics, especially who go on exchange to places like Heidelberg and, and you've got a, a wonderful yes. section on Weltpolitik um, in your book. And, and you actually mm-hmm. even show a photo of Stresemann getting his honorary doctorate from Heidelberg. It, it seems so idyllic. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. And then something happens in 1929 and yeah. 1930. So tell us tell us what happens in the third. 30- part of your book
1: yeah so the third part is sort of um, looks at what happens when sort of economic and political crisis hit this just restored relationship Um, and and I guess uh, the interesting thing is that things really start to decline already in 1930 Um, all of a sudden with sort of with the Great Depression, the the United States loses some of its fascination. Um, and uh, loses some of its influence. And of course, you know, then the war debts are cancelled, um, and so on. so so in a way, the United States becomes ext- much less important in the 1930s than it was in the 1920s. Um, And at least for careful observers, this becomes clear very, very early on. At the same time, Gustav Stresemann, um, sort of the key peaceful revisionist, the foreign minister, he dies in late 1929, just a few weeks before the stock market crashes. So the the relatively stable politics and the relatively stable or actually great prosperity Um, that at least the United States rests on in the 1920s, that goes at the same moment. And it's interesting to see what happens to German-American relations in the very early 30s, but also, of course, after the the Nazis take power in 1933. Um, And I guess the the two interesting things about this are that A, there's a lot of continuity um, from, you know, Weimar Germany to Nazi Germany. Um, and mm-hmm. that continuity, like in terms of the organizations that have been developed, in terms of the people that lead these sort of the student exchange, for example, and so on. At first, there is a for example, the, the person who leads the German Tourist Information Office, um, Ernst Schmitz, he's in New York from 1925 to 1941 and there's no change to the germany he advertises and he advertises very skillfully um mm. there's no it there is an an extreme continuity in terms of how germany is being advertised in um, in many of these programs and this continuity is intentional um mm. the nazi government actually talks about should we you know replace these people with people that are ideologically closer to us um but they decide that, you know, then the Americans might back away. Um, Americans are debating anyway what they should do with Nazi Germany, but it's often sort of this personal continuity that convinces them that really Nazi Germany is just is basically the same as Weimar Germany just with sort of a bit of unpleasant yeah. authoritarianism thrown in. Um, so that's the first thing that happens is this continuity. And the second is that ultimately, um the the relations um do wither um and mm-hmm. and they wither especially sort of from 1936 onward um with german aggression and when it becomes clearer and clearer that this really is a completely different type of um regime and then ultimately mm-hmm. um, a lot of the people that spent the 1920s um and early 1930s sort of bringing the two countries closer together will actually um, g- become immigrants and, and go to the United States. Um, and many of the students will stay on in Nazi Germany. They will have nice careers um, and, um, and then will welcome um, the German, uh, the, the US GIs in 1945 mm-hmm. and tell them that they've always loved America and that they've been Democrats all along.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm.
1: there's a, and um, there, there's I just actually the connections go well into the 1940s and 50s. And um, it is a story I don't tell, um, but right. it's definitely there.
0: Right, right. And I, I mean, I, I wonder if I could just follow up with one question about 1933, because, you know, I mean, honestly, when I think of 1933, I, I think of the dis- dismissal and, and really sort of expulsion of. Um, Jewish academics. I mean, I think of yeah. the, the case of Einstein, most famously, and there were many others. So, I mean, what does this actually mean on an institutional level, if we're talking about things like the Carnegie Endowment, or, you know, a day, which is uh, still functioning, still in existence? I mean, do you see um, changes and, on that level? Because there, there's such a crisis by January, really through all of 1933 in, in German-American relations. How, how does that actually affect uh, what once were, you know, sort of fruitful, if not prosperous academic exchanges between the two countries?
1: It does not affect those exchanges as much as we would think in hindsight. Mm-hmm. right um, That is a really surprising thing. Yes, ultimately, for example, the Carnegie Endowment or the Rockefeller Foundation, they ultimately stop funding German institutions. And for the Rockefeller Foundation, that actually happens in the very late 1930s. But the student exchanges are kept. Um, are maintained, and they're maintained against sort of bitter American criticism, right? I mean, Americans rightly pointing out that these are carefully selected German students and that they have to be party members very often, but at least, you know, ideologically conform to the Nazi party line. Um, And these are sent to the American campus. Um, But... The internationalists, like uh, people at at the Institute of International Education, for example, but also people like Nicholas Murray Butler, really, they argue they that basically what Germany needs now is not to be isolated again, because that's part of where the trouble comes from. right? One isolated Germany uh, in nineteen twenty, and that's part of the problem. That's part of why, mm-hmm. you know, Germans are so resentful and Hitler came to power and so on. So, the worst thing one could do now is to repeat that mistake. And so, they take from their experience of the 1920s the idea that Germany needs to be kept within the family of nations, um, especially culturally. And it's actually 1934. And then 1935 and 36 are a record tourist years. I mean, despite the Great Depression, sort of Americans go to Germany because they want to see what Germany looks like um, now, Nazi Germany, and they very often come back with positive impressions. They say, "Oh, everything is so orderly, um, completely different. All we hear in our newspapers are is propaganda," and that's of course mm. exactly the type of impression that people like Goebbels, who takes over the tourism. Department, um, that's what they are hoping for. So surprisingly yeah. little happens, despite the fact that so many people emigrate, um, and that um, especially among many of the people that stay in contact with Germany, it's quite well known um, how heavily um, they are persecuted.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah and and this is um, I think one of your larger arguments and I kind of want to move to the big takeaway points in, in your book I, these are classical German questions about change and continuity <laughs> and discontinuity you know we, we are here on new books German studies on the network um, but it, it's such an important question I think for people who are studying peacemakers uh, and and sort of you know non-state actors as well um, how then would you describe uh, given in this Franco-German competition for American favor uh, and Germany's competition with, with other countries in this atmosphere of, of revisionspolitik, how would you describe the Weimar Republic's cultural diplomacy? Is it is it unique? Is it different? How does it differ fundamentally from, let's say, even the earlier eras of German history, like in Vil- the Wilhelmine period?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um- And so this is a big sort of German historiographical discussion, right? Uh, Continuity and change from 1918 to the Weimar, so from Wilhelmine Germany to Weimar Germany to Nazi Germany. And um, I actually show in the conclusion, but also throughout, that I believe Weimar Germany had a genuinely different foreign policy, at least with regard to the United States. Right? And part of the reason, of course, is because the United States is so important. And I show that the difference is one in psychology. Whenever Weimar Germany made a decision pertaining to the United States, they would always consider public sentiment. They would try to find out or try to think, imagine, what would happen in the United States if they took a certain decision. Uh, And then even if they wanted to to implement something, for example, send a naval attaché to the German embassy in Washington, um, they would then probably not do it. And that is a major difference, both to how Wilhelmine Germany operated, which very often just did things and then was surprised that, you know. Right,
0: the Prussian <laughs> yeah. Ministry of Culture really operated on that kind of ad hoc basis a lot. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. So that, and the Nazi Germany, of course, does does the same thing, right? The first thing they try to do is mobilize German-Americans, and it happens an immediate backlash, um, as if, mm-hmm. you know, Weimar Germany had never existed. And Weimar does things differently. It thinks about the consequences, and ultimately it defers, um, on many points, the United States is too important to just do whatever you want. And that accommodation, that is completely different from both pre-1918 and post-1933. Um, and that, what I think, makes for a uniquely um, Weimar foreign policy, a republikanische Außenpolitik, um, mm-hmm. as, as, as the term goes. Um, but, and there's a big but, uh, to this right just because it yes i feel it there is a republican foreign policy that is different from what comes before and what comes after but it's not a republican public diplomacy and what i mean mm-hmm. by that is that yes germany weimar germany advertises itself quite well but it does not advertise a republican germany um, you see this in a tons of small decisions. For example, um, the, the exchange students they send abroad to the United States are not screened as to their political convictions. So you mm. have this crazy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
0: I hadn't thought of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and yeah. the, Nazi, the Nazis do it, of course, right? But you right, have, of to, course, <laughs> if Weimar wants to send someone abroad, they do not ask whether this person has a positive attitude to the republic. They don't. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that they actually send Nazi Party members, students that are Nazi Party members, to represent Weimar Germany as early as 1930. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that there's no mechanism by which they try to ascertain that they project a Republican Germany. Um, it's just Germany. It's a, it's a general sort of idea of a modern Germany. Just the same goes for the tourism promotion. Um, and this is part of the reason why there is such a continuity after 1933. The Nazis don't need to change much. There's not really some, anything that's really offensive to them um, in the content that Weimar Germany has promoted. And this, mm-hmm. I think, is the critical flaw of what mm-hmm. they do. Um, and actually, I wanted to call this book, Selling Weimar, question <laughs> mark. But of course, <laughs> the publisher hated it, so I had to right. remove <laughs> so the, the answer is, Weimar Germans were quite good at, at selling Germany, but they were, were extremely terrible at selling the Republic. And in fact, they never wanted to in the first place. mm mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And if, yeah. if a lot of Americans saw many things they thought looked uniquely democratic about Weimar, and they did, especially the tourists commented on this quite extensively, then it's more because they wanted to see it, not because mm-hmm. anyone intended for them to see mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
0: yeah yeah and and so could since we're winding down a little bit, could you talk maybe um i'm re- I'm really intrigued by the this sort of future of day a day after you know I think everybody who's involved in it should read this book um not to mention i i e and Fulbright and <laughs> Rockefeller and Carnegie and foundations that support um, cultural ambassadorship. Uh, but could you maybe suggest for our listeners here at New Books uh, a couple of um, authors or, uh, or, or books or even articles that you might suggest on the topic?
1: Yeah, uh, I would actually suggest um, a really good buy, book by Whitney Walton, who teaches at Purdue. Um, it's called Internationalism, National Identities and Study Abroad, France and the United States. 1890 to 1970, and so she traces the student relationship between France and the United States, and it's, 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 it's a wonderful read, um, and it tells you sort of the, the counterpart to what my book tells you, because the Franco-German relationship is very difficult, and they both compete for the United States at the time. Um, especially with regard to students and tourists. Um, So that is a wonderful read for anyone who's who's interested in cultural relations and students, and in this case, France. And then um, I'd also recommend um, Ben Martin's book um, about the Nazi fascist new order for European culture. Um, And what he does, it's, I think, two thousand. 16 uh, Harvard University Press, Uh, what he does is he basically takes my story further into sort of the late 90s and then the war period. And he describes how this feeling of cultural blockade, of being culturally isolated, led the Nazis to develop a completely new idea of cultural order, one with Germany at its heart, um, and that they tried to implement as they occupied m- most of Europe. Um, so he would be sort of the, he would take the story further into Nazi Germany than I was able to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. Uh, that's that's really useful and, and helpful um, for people reading in, in diplomatic history and, and public history too. And so, uh, what are you working on now? This is really my last question uh, for you, Dr. Piller. Are you uh, in the Weimar period, staying in the Weimar period, or, or moving to other things?
1: Well, if you know the German academic system, then you know that I now have to uh, change centuries. Um, and yes, or... <laughs> <How are you? laughs> <laughs> yes, so I, I, ideally, I would now do something on I don't know American missionaries in uh, seventeen ninety, um, but I've actually decided to go back to you know um, part of what I did for the master's thesis, and I'm I'm looking at um, American humanitarian aid to Europe after nineteen forty-five. So that, uh, that the 1945 break uh, almost counts as, a, as changing centuries, I was told. Um, so I, <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, I, uh, I, well, you know, I'm just working my way through the historiography of the early Cold War. And okay. um, it, is, um, <laughs> it feels like a different century. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I wonder if, if you might just say a word about your great-grandparents are they Mm -hmm. i know i have seen this um yeah that they're 99 and 106 is that right
1: so i um yes so the book is is uh is for my um for my grandparents (laughs) Um, Not great grandparents, just grandparents. I have very old grandparents. um, And everyone that has ever met me at a conference knows that eventually I will start talking about my grandparents. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, I I, I write in in the very introduction that they've sort of lived through most of the things that I describe here. Right. Um, My grandpa is born in 1914. So he's actually, you know, was five when Versailles happened. And my grandma is born in 1921. One, and they will tell me, you know, when Stresemann died, for example, they remember that, um, and of course they remember when Adolf Hitler was was elected, um, when Hindenburg died, and so on and so on. Um, so yes, they're they're still um, alive, and um, yeah. and they were they're very happy um, about the book, and um, they would be even happier. Uh, if, if they had a great grandchild but you know um, now, they, <laughs> now, now they have the book um, and um, yes yeah. so they, they show well, it to everyone and I actually had to the little section about them in it I had to translate to, to German so they can read it to their friends yeah.
0: Well, this is that was my most unusual last question I think I've ever asked in in my previous, you know, 49 episodes. You are number 50.
1: We're
0: we're, we're commemorating things. uh, And I wish I wish them and you good health going going forward. Um, into into all of the things that you're doing and all of your research. Um, Elizabeth, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and just give one quick plug for your book. Uh, congratulations to Dr. Elizabeth Piller at the University of Freiburg in Germany. Her book is called Selling Weimar, German Public Diplomacy and the United States, 1918 to 1933, question mark or no question mark, (laughs) published by Franz Steiner in 2021. Congratulations. And thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.
0: And I'm Steven Siegel, your host here on Nubooks Network and Nubooks German Studies and Nubooks American Studies today. Until next time.